Hey everyone, this is Lucas Banyo, an investor at Village Global, and I'm here with my co-host Ian Cinnamon. Welcome to SolarPunk. In this podcast, we cover topics related to space and defense and discuss how technology can contribute to a better and safer world. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Solar Punk. We could not be more excited to welcome AJ Piplica today on the show. AJ is the founder and CEO of Hermes, where he leads a team focused on radically accelerating air travel through the development of hypersonic aircraft. Prior to founding Hermes, AJ served as the CEO of Generation Orbit, where he led the inception and development of the X-60A, an Air Force hypersonic X-plane. He has a strong background in aerospace systems design, including spacecraft, launch vehicles, and hypersonic aircraft. AJ, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, guys. Pleasure to be here. Awesome. So I thought that maybe we could kick things off by talking a little bit more about Hermes and what is the future that you and the company are enabling? Sure. So we started the company back in 2018 with the big picture, long-term vision of radically accelerating air travel. So um, you know, if you look back at history, it's been a long time since we've changed the speed at which we move around the planet over 50 years, almost, almost 60 or 70 at this point. And that leaves an immense amount of growth from both a social and economic standpoint on the table uh, that really hasn't been harvested and unlocked. And you know, being able to you know, not only accelerate transportation uh, at, a, at a local level, but being able to do it at a global level is uh, is, is kind of the, the full mission that, uh, that we're going after here at Hermes in the long term. AJ, help us understand wh- why does that matter? Like, why, why should we care about moving at that faster rate of speed? Yeah, so if you look back in history, pretty much... Every time there's been an acceleration of a transportation network, it's always been associated with significant social and economic growth. So um, you, know, you look back at when Rome built out their roads network, it was a military project. Um, when we switched from sail power to steam power in marine shipping, uh, when China built out their high-speed rail network in the 20th century, each of those instances were you know, accompanied by multiple single-digit uh, percentage point growth in GDP of the affected regions. Um, and that really speaks to the impact that you know the speed of transportation or, or barriers to people and goods moving around, you know, the impact that that has uh, on us as a society. And you know, like I said, we we have kind of become accustomed to the world moving at you know eight tenths the speed of sound essentially. You know, we haven't had a speed up of of this magnitude in, in quite some time. You know, we've kind of looked at, okay, what does this actually mean at, at the end of the day when, when all the numbers play out? Um, and it's something that's, you know, something crazy, uh, you know, about two percentage points of GDP growth at the global stage. That's like $4 trillion a year of new growth that doesn't exist today. It's not like zero sum where uh, you're growing to other places, some places, and then you're shrinking others. This is new growth that, um, you know, we have to kind of keep finding ways to unlock. Um, and, you know, like fundamentally, at the end of the day, it really comes down to uh, face-to-face interaction between human beings. Um, you know, I think uh, most of us have seen throughout the course of the pandemic um, just how important and valuable face-to-face communication is, and that that's true for uh, economic reasons and it's true for social reasons. So, you know, when I, <laughs> you know, that like four trillion dollars a year is a pretty staggering number. It's maybe too big to really like understand the magnitude of, but to put it in perspective, that amount of growth would pay for carb- decarbonizing all of aviation eight times over in one year. So that's uh, kind of, you know, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that 
uh, you know, that really motivates us here um, is to you know, unlock that latent potential to humanity that we've been you know, sitting on a gold mine of uh, for a long time, um, you know, and, and it's been kind of really held back by the fact that we move around the world the pace that we do today. So, AJ, you, I, I, I buy it. I buy exactly what you're pitching. You're not the only one to think this way, right? We've seen um, Boom Supersonic, Exosonic, mm-hmm. Hermes, uh, several others. There's a lot of buzz. Why do you think, one, the timing is now? Like, Why has this all happened just over the last couple of years? And is there mm-hmm. room for everyone? Or is there going to be consolidation? What does this look like? Sure. So um, let me answer the kind of why now question first. So you know, when we started the company back in, in 18, um, but there are kind of three things that we really saw that that just screamed to us, now is the time to do this. The first is that the technology uh, you know, to build these kinds of high-speed aircraft exists and is mature enough today, at least at the component level, uh, to start trying. Um, we don't need to invent you know, new propulsion cycles. We don't need to invent new materials. All of those things have, have existed. I mean, turbojets have been around since the 1950s, as have ramjets. We no longer need to smuggle in titanium from the USSR like we did in the SR-71 days. So, you know, all of that being kind of more significantly more available today, you know, and you pair that with modern uh, kind of computational capabilities, both from like a hardware standpoint, as well as a software standpoint, along with uh, additive manufacturing. Now you've got all these pieces to the puzzle where, you know, when you kind of pair a modern means of developing complex systems, that's very hardware focused, um, not purely analytical, but, but leverages those analytical capabilities to iterate faster. Now you can turn around a vehicle design in, you know, uh, you know, a handful of years where, you know, probably for the past few decades, it's generally taken, you know, about a decade or so to do it. So, um, you know, I think that the pace of, of development in aerospace, this isn't, isn't just, you know, the high speed mobility world. I think it's true in the launch world, the satellite worlds, uh, you know, eVTOL, uh, you name it. I mean, we're in this crazy renaissance period in, in aerospace right now. Um, you know, people used to ask me, like, what decade do you wish you would be you know, living and working in as an aerospace engineer. And, you know, uh, a couple of years ago, I probably would have told you the 1950s, uh, but it's, it's now it is, it is the 2020s. And, you know, we've got an, an immense opportunity here to, to really kind of come in and, and change the way that things are, things are done. Um, you know, the other kind of two things that, that drove us at the time were the, the defense applications for the technology, um, at least when you're kind of up at these, you know, speeds around Mach 4, Mach 5, um, there are some really critical uh, national security applications for both the U.S. and their allied partners that those types of reusable you know, high, high-speed aircraft systems can solve. Um, and that, for us, is kind of the key to unlocking uh, the financial challenges associated with this vision that we're trying to, you know, to execute on, uh, which like, is, is maybe a little heretical for, for me as an engineer to say that like, the technology challenges are hard, the financial ones are harder. And without intermediate markets to build kind of an incremental business on top of that has a strong growing financial foundation, it's incredibly difficult to kind of, you know, uh, achieve that, that long-term goal. So, um, you know, the defense applications are, are pretty key here in making that happen. And then, of course, the availability of private capital, especially over the past few years, has, uh, has really, I think, opened up uh, an immense amount of opportunity for people willing to, you know, take the risk and you know, essentially jump off a cliff and try to build an airplane together on the way down. You know, and you touched on um, you know a number of different uh, you know players in, in the space today, and and you'd asked uh, kind of you know is, is there room for everybody at the end of the day? So on the commercial side, you know the future I see is where you know the amount of money that you pay uh, to fly on an airplane from one place on on the globe to another 
you know, is no longer going to be kind of differentiated based purely on comfort, like, you know, the way it is today. Essentially, everybody moves at the same speed and you pay more for comfort, more space. In the future, there's going to be another metric um, that uh, kind of provides differentiation in product offerings for you know, airlines, uh, and, and that'll be speed. And I think it's actually going to go in, in both directions. Um, you'll have high-speed aircraft available to you to where, uh, you know, a supersonic aircraft, maybe, you know, the price of uh, maybe a high-end premium economy um, and a you know, hypersonic aircraft, maybe, uh, you know, near, uh, near business class, something like that. Um, and, you know, you're getting there faster, you're paying a little bit more for still a comfortable experience, but, you know, not a lay flat seat. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, as you see kind of, uh, the continued iteration on efficiency for aircraft, um, especially as electrification starts to come into the market and other forms of uh, you know, propulsion, you know, say hydrogen uh, or fuel cells or things like that, um, I think you're actually going to see aircraft like slower, you know, especially as, as uh, you know, electric aircraft start to come in for you know, regional ranges. Um, but even for some of these longer range, you know, crossing ocean uh, type, type flights, I think the electric aircraft are going to fly quite a bit slower um, and, and they may be less expensive. So now, you know, speed becomes a major, major differentiator in the product market or in the, kind of the product mix for, for airlines. And, and people can take a range of different strategies uh, for how they want to approach that. So, um, you know, I certainly see there being a wide range of, of room for a number of different players um, you know, when the uh, kind of commercial piece gets there. The trick is you know, who finds a way to actually get there, right? primarily from a financial standpoint. Totally. And AJ, I would love to double click on something that you said uh, a, a while back, which is the both the military and the commercial use cases. So I was wondering if you could double click where you see uh, the potential for innovation in new aircraft in each of them. And how do you as a founder think about the balance of pursuing both commercial and government and government opportunities uh, for Hermes at the same time? Sure. So I'll start with the commercial. I think it's actually like quite obvious. Uh, we we actually used to have a, a slide in our in our pitch decks um, that kind of talked about the commercial opportunity here, and everybody kept having to skip it because it was so blatantly obvious uh, how how big the market is there. So we actually <laughs> took it out, but you know that, that kind of gives us our guiding our guiding light for our vision and, and the way that we make decisions about what technologies to pursue and, and so forth. But you know while the commercial market is the reason that we started the company uh, at, at, you know at the very beginning. I don't think we get there successfully uh, if we aren't successful in solving some of these these national security challenges along the way for a range of different reasons. Some kind of internal to the company, like you know having a strong growing business that can actually finance getting to the commercial stage, um, but also you know the global geopolitical situation that we have right now um, can really I think be affected massively positively by bringing these types of capabilities to bear. From a technology perspective, you know there's there's obviously quite a bit of risk. We can't just, we'd be naive to think we can go build a 20 passenger Mach 5 aircraft right off the bat here. Um, there's a lot of things that have to be proven out. So, you know, we laid out this strategy uh, that essentially um, kind of took a, an incremental approach to de risking the technology. Um, and in doing so, an incremental approach to de risking the business case as well. So, the first aircraft that we're building uh, is called Quarter Horse. Um, it's a pretty small autonomous aircraft uh, designed really to do two things uh, to get up to high speed, you know, Mach 4 to 5. Uh, and be reusable. Uh, so that's something that that hasn't been done before. Um, it'll break the first uh, airspeed record in almost 50 years. Um, but for us, you know, it allows us to you know, get up to these kinds of conditions reliably and get back. And that kind of starts to touch on some of the defense applications 
in terms of hypersonic uh, flight testing. It's an area where you know, the United States uh, is, is arguably behind some other countries uh, in terms of you know, our cadence of, of flight testing in these types of high-speed, high-temperature conditions. I think we've, we've flown like an order of magnitude fewer flight tests than, than uh, China has over the past uh, five years. You know, part of the big reason for that is because of the, the cost that's associated with that. Most of the hypersonic flight testing that's been done uh, in the United States to date has been based on, you know, expendable systems and especially expendable rocket boosters. So, you know, the, I think the going rate for just getting data back from Mach 5 is like, you know, 5 to $10 million of flight. Uh, and that may be only for a few seconds of data. So, you know, if we're able to bring reusability to that game, you know, now not only are you, uh, you know, reducing the cost, but you're also increasing the frequency of flight testing that can occur. Um, and you're really starting to generate, you know, the data that's necessary to get to the, the, the next later stages uh, of developing these kinds of hypersonic systems. So uh, that's kind of, you know, an initial piece of um, you know, defense applicability for the technology. But, you know, from an operational standpoint, the next step for, for us on the technology roadmap is, is to get to uh, an aircraft that we call Dark Horse that's, that starts to take on some of the high or like high speed, long duration uh, elements of, of the problem. Um, and, you know, with a, a hypersonic aircraft that can cruise around for a while, come back, land uh, and operate again. Um, now you're starting to get into uh, some of the real operational utility uh, of, uh, of hypersonic aircraft from a military perspective. Um, I can't speak too much to the specifics, um, although you can kind of let your imagination run a little wild. Um, obviously, the, you know, the SR-71 type mission is uh, a, a pretty kind of standard uh, use case for, for high-speed aircraft. Um, but there's a, a range of other things uh, that can be done as you start really looking at kind of what the next, you know, five, 10 years of uh, modernization in, in the you know, defense world uh, are, are going to going to bring about in terms of you know, networked uh, network systems operating in contested environments, um, especially when you're looking at, you know, in, uh, Areas of uh, areas of responsibility like you know the Indo Pacific that are characterized by you know, very long ranges of open water. Um, it's difficult to to really do anything quickly over over long ranges without moving fast. So uh, you know that's where we see kind of the the real military utility in uh, in what we're building. And you know I think at the end of the day, um, you know hypersonic aircraft uh, are, are really going to be a kind of a damping force uh, when it comes to you know, geopolitical competition. Um, in that, you know, really, they're going to be providing better and better information faster and faster to decision makers, you know, and of course, you know, layered within uh, you know, very networked and AI enabled uh, battle space. But, uh, you know, the, the quality of decision making that can be made at, at speed is really kind of what drives how, um, you know, what, what prevents conflicts first. Um, and then, of course, you know, if, if uh, you do end up in one, uh, being able to be successful in, in those types of campaigns is, is also driven that way as well. So, um, you know, obviously space is a, is a major element of, um, you know, how future wars will be fought. Um, and uh, space is not always uh, available to you uh, in a contested environment. So, you know, being able to put things where you need them, when you need them very quickly uh, is really where, you know, the, the airborne piece of the puzzle comes in. So. Um, and then, you know, downstream when it comes to Halcyon, which is our, our you know, passenger aircraft, um, you know, there are obviously military applications to that as well from, uh, you know, personnel and, and logistics standpoint. So, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're really trying to align both the, you know, the near-term defense applications for the technology with the long-term commercial applications. 
so that we're kind of building the right technology to get there at the end of the day on the commercial side, and you know, both from a technical and a, and a financial standpoint. Amazing overview of the future. To take us a little bit to the past and double click on something that you talked about, uh, I'd love to go deeper on the incredible legacy of the aerospace industry, right? Um, you know, new aircraft were once the, one of the crown jewels of American innovation. We had Lockheed's Skunk Works, the Concorde, the Blackbird, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So from your perspective, AJ, um, what happened and why does it feel or why has it felt for so long that we've been stuck in time for such a long period of time? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question. And uh, I, I wish we had some video here because there's a, there's a fantastic visual that, that illustrates this incredibly well. There's a, a piece of art at the Pentagon uh, that um, essentially is a, is a timeline with every new aircraft development on it uh, at scale, you know, the scale of the aircraft over time, you know, starts in the, you know, essentially later stages of, of World War One and presses forward into World War Two, And, you know, when you get to the, you know, the late 40s, 50s, there's just an immense density of new aircraft uh, that are being built and commissioned. You know, and that continues throughout the Cold War. But eventually starts to taper off, and you know by the time you get to the the 21st century, you know, you, you have a new aircraft uh, maybe every few years if you're lucky, and you know part of that is is the peace dividend coming out of the the Cold War, um, but I think a, a a really a stronger driver of the kind of reduction in our ability to you know iterate in, in development um, has come from the way that the defense world works, you know, it is, it is incredibly, uh, you know, kind of entrenched in its incumbency. Um, you know, the, the big primes are, are there, they're there for a reason. They, they can do some really incredible things. Um, but the way that the incentive structure is, is set up is, you know, not necessarily to iterate at high speed through new capabilities. Um, you know, it's really focused on, you know, selling a big program and then, you know, sustaining it over the course of you know, 70 to 80 years, um, you know, like take the F-35 program, for example. And, uh, you know, I think, well, that's, I think, made it much more difficult for, for us to modernize, um, you know, the, the DOD and not just internet aircraft, this, this happens in other places as well. But it, it creates an immense opportunity for, you know, new entrants to, to start coming in and, you know, bringing kind of a, a new means of developing complex systems that's very hardware focused, that really pairs uh, hardware development with you know, modern modeling and simulation tools, to the point where we're seeing lots of new aircraft on, on a regular basis. Um, obviously, you know, the certification and, and you know, testing regimes that are required to deliver an operational aircraft are, are quite stringent. Um, I think you see that in the, even in the space world, but you're not, notwithstanding, uh, you know, we're not even kind of building experimental aircraft at, at the rate that we used to. So, I mean, and, and you can see kind of a similar trend um, in, you know, the consolidation of uh, you know, defense primes over the past uh, 20, 25 years or so to the point where now there's, you know, a handful, you can kind of count them on a hand and a half. And, uh, you know, I think going forward, you're going to see more companies pop up and be successful in delivering uh, defense capabilities that are you know, kind of more specialized, more more nuanced versus you know, these big primes that are uh, amalgamations of uh, you know, all sorts of different things. So I think like you'll see companies building hypersonic aircraft, for example, building autonomous boats, being building all, all sorts of different things, and you know maybe a little bit less of the you know uh, amalgamated defense prime uh, that builds you know everything uh, from 
mines and bullets to you know buildings and humvees and and aircraft so yeah i think it's an, an immense opportunity that we have uh today and also like an immense kind of responsibility at the end of the day too that was one of the things that uh, myself and my co-founders really uh kind of felt as as we you know put the company together and, and got started um you know it was clear to us that there's immense amount of immense amount of defense modernization that needs to happen and really not enough people being willing to take the risk to go and do it. So, you know, that that's certainly a responsibility that we carry on our shoulders every single day. And it's, uh, you know, really, really strong motivating factor for us as we you know, press through what we're doing. So, AJ, you, you hinted at this throughout kind of some of the points that you talked about before, but there's two common thoughts when it comes to building a new aircraft and bringing it to market. One, it takes a billion dollars to actually do all of the work to develop it and certify it. And two, it takes about 10 years. So, would love your response. Are both of those accurate? And then specifically for you at Hermes, how do you think about that? Sure. So I would say yes and no. Um, I think if uh, you're talking about a uh, certified passenger aircraft through you know, Part 25 at the FAA, a billion dollars is, is probably about the right number. Um, I think that's kind of that's around what it took Gulfstream to do its most recent iteration of um, you know, it's, it, G700 or 800, whatever it is they're on today. Uh, so I don't think that dollar number is particularly far off. 10 years, uh, I think is a bit long. You know, I think you can do it uh, quite a bit faster than that if you're prepared in the right way. But, you know, for, for a company like us or, or really anybody kind of starting out, like you're not going to go raise a billion dollars of private capital to develop a new aircraft and pour all that money in before you're, you're getting to revenue. And that's really where I think the, the kind of key is to this whole thing is, is not how much does it cost necessarily. Uh, Cause I think like, you know, boom has even come out and said like, yeah, it'll, it's going to cost us $8 billion. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did at the end of the day. Uh, not that it has to, but it certainly can. Um, the question is where does all that money come from? Um, and, you know, for us, it's uh, it comes from kind of a, a you know development strategy that has multiple S curves of growth in it, where you know at each stage of technical de-risking, um, you're building a product that's solving a really important set of challenges for for customers. So um, you know much much in the way that, that SpaceX did, you know, uh, it's you know it's going to cost billions and billions of dollars to you know put a person on Mars, um, but you know they didn't try to raise all that money uh, privately. They have at each stage of de-risking the technology to get there, they found really important problems to solve for customers um, and have built a really good business along the way. So, you know, Falcon 1, Falcon 9, Dragon, you know, now and Starship and Starlink, each of those, those things are kind of, you know, dual use in terms of demonstrating the technology necessary to go to Mars, as well as building the financial foundation to do so. Um, so it's, it's kind of the same thing for us with, you know, Quarter Horse, um, you know, take a step in technology, get up to Mach 5 and get back. And also, you know, solve a problem, a really important challenge for customers on the hypersonic flight test side, um, and you know, build the first S curve in in the business. You know, get to Dark Horse, do the same thing. Get to Halcyon, do the same thing, and continue and continue. Um, but you know, it's the the key to all of that is ensuring that kind of you know the revenues that a company is generating uh, with the technical de-risking that it's doing are growing. You know, ahead of the amount of capital that it needs to bring it at the end of the day. So. Um, you know, we're, we're still going to have a ton of private capital to raise, um, but, you know, we'll be able to do it on top of, you know, a steady and recurring revenue stream uh, that allows the, you know, the company to grow commensurately. I think that overview of one financing in general, but also your plan um, is very illuminating. So thank you for explaining that. 
you know, to your point, very hard to go raise a billion dollars up front, though you've raised a hundred million dollars up front, at least according to the last announced fundraising round. That's an incredible feat. So first, congratulations, not because fundraising is a milestone, but because that will enable you to kind of get to those first several S-curves. Now, when you think about your ability to go raise that large sum of capital, do you think that if you were to start Hermes today, where the markets are in a slightly different place than they were when you know you got your last funding, do you think it would be possible? Like, How much of starting a company, a deep tech hardware company like this, has to do with market conditions? First, just you know, uh, timing the technology and uh, kind of market demand correctly. They're inexorably coupled. I think. Uh, so to answer your question directly, if we started the company today, I, I think we would we would still be successful in, in raising you know uh, seed rounds and, and even even possibly Series A. But I think the maybe more interesting question was like, if you needed to raise your Series B, you know, hundred million dollar Series B today, do you think the company would be successful? That is a much more, much, much, much more difficult, uh, you know, question to say. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, too. You know, um, so market conditions and and timing are immensely important. And you know, some things you can you can kind of foresee and, and plan for. Um, and obviously, you know, there's there's plenty of uncertainty. And, and some things you just can't control. But uh, you know, in in the defense world specifically, which is you know kind of where we spend most of our time from a customer perspective here in the near term, I do think the defense world uh, is going to be a little bit insulated from you know, much of the kind of market movement that we're seeing today, given, you know, obviously like consumer focused uh, companies are, are going to have a very difficult time. Um, I think <laughs> defense focused companies, we already have a difficult time. Um, I don't think it gets that much more difficult, but like maybe it's now as uh, <laughs> difficult as it is for, for other consumer focused companies. And you know it's it's difficult because it, it takes a very long time, and there's you know an immense amount of, of risk and uncertainty in in working with the government at scale. You know, I think there's there's frankly no better time than than now and you know the coming five to ten years to do so, and that's really because of a lot of uh, you know a lot of the the changes that are being made within the department um, in terms of working with non traditional companies and, and startups and, and really leveraging new business models to solve some of the modernization challenges that uh, you know, that the country has. So I think that that creates an immense amount of opportunity for starting you know, deep tech companies that are, that are fundamentally dual use, um, that have both a commercial as well as a you know, defense application to them, uh, or, or even pure uh, pure defense companies. Um, yeah, now, now is a fantastic time uh, you know, to, be, to be working in, in those areas. Uh, amazing overview, AJ. Um, you know, something that we want to talk to you more about is really that partnership with the government, especially as it relates to all of the foreign policy and national security issues that we're going to talk more about with you. Talking specifically more about programs like SBIRs and SCTRs and how the government can better support new companies and new startups uh, that want to work in defense. What are the main issues uh, with those programs today and what needs to be improved so that it better serves not only the interests of startups, but also the, the interests of the American taxpayer and the interests of the, the country as a whole? Sure. So the, you know, SBIR program as, as a whole, um, I think has some issues with, um, you know, the kind of types of companies that, uh, you know, leverage. Program. Obviously, it's, it's a very large bucket of, of funding. Um, you know, nation, nationwide, it's you know, billions of dollars on an annual basis. But I think what what you see a lot is you know very very small checks 
being written. And, you know, and that makes it very difficult, especially for you know, deep tech, you know, hardware rich capital intensive projects, um, you know, to get across the so-called acquisition valley of death, you know, from early R&D stages to, you know, an ongoing recurring revenue in, in a program of record. So it's, you know, I don't think the, the SBR program is, is kind of set up really to really require that, um, you know, it, I don't know that the kind of commercialization metrics that are that are currently used, you know, really I think evaluates uh, you know commercialization performance uh, you know, sufficiently there. But all of the tools and pieces are are, are there to to leverage uh, you know the program in in a way where uh, you kind of, you're not sitting in it, like you're not building a company just to go go after you know SBIR after SBIR. Um, you know, you're using it as kind of a means to an end. You know, for for us, our approach to to Sibbers was, um, you know, number one, get a government contract um, because that start once you get your first government contract, that starts to open up, um, you know, the the next stages of, of things, um, and then you know beyond that, uh, you know, the the Stratify program, which is you know a larger chunk of dollars, so we signed a a thirty million dollar contract as part of a sixty million dollar partnership with the Air Force, so um, that's a basically a very large you know Sibber that's intended to drive, um, you know. Delivering a you know capability at the end of the day, um, and getting getting company prepared to move on to a program of record and you know say a phase three, but like you kind of have to approach it as a tool, not kind of the end uh, end all be all um, of you know what you're trying to build. Phase one and phase two sibbers are like in some in some cases like comically easy to get. Um, so I think in, in many cases you know if you're going to a venture capitalist with you know uh, hey you know I've got like a bunch of phase two sibbers that's, that's actually probably like a negative uh signal unless it's tied within a broader strategy of, of growth like how are you going to graduate out of this program and eventually get to the point where you know you're getting to recurring revenue and and you're you're in the um you know essentially the the country's budget um you know if, if that's the goal and there's a strategy where you know each of these these sibbers are like you know playing a role in that strategy that's a very different story and that's the approach that we've that we've taken at Hermius. I don't think it's the the normal approach, um, but I think it's it's really the way that, that the program you know, should be leveraged. If part of the intent of the Cyber program is is to you know attract private investment to come in alongside um, and and actually deliver capability at the, at the end of the day, um, you know I, I'd love to see a metric on on Cybers mm-hmm. that is like you know operational uses of you know technology that that comes out of uh, out of the program, both on the you know, more so on the on the defense side than, than on the purely commercial side. So uh, there are there are other barriers um, you know, in there to to cut uh, companies working with the DoD. The you know the the budgeting cycle is is probably the biggest one. I don't think there's actually an acquisition problem. I think all the tools are there from an acquisition standpoint. There's maybe a little bit of a you know cultural thing um, in terms of uh, kind of you know management, middle management, especially kind of you know working working with the tools that are there and available, but. Um, you know, the, the a two-year cycle to get into your customer's budget is is an incredibly daunting challenge for a startup that, you know, essentially raises funding for the next, you know, 18 to 24 months um, in and of itself. So, like, you have to start early. You have to understand the physics of how the system works. And then, you know, you have to go in with the mindset um, that, you know, this this entrance point is just that. Uh, it's not the end. Is just the beginning, and it's part of a, a greater strategy to, to you know grow what you're eventually delivering. So, and two it, quick follow up questions to, to to what you just said here, AJ. 
To what extent, you know, you mentioned a lot of challenges that startups face when working with the government. To what extent are cost plus contracts responsible to a lot of the issues that we have? You know, I, I'm sure you saw this, but NASA chief Bill Nelson said the other day how cost plus contracts were a plague to the agency. And then, you know, to solve all these issues, to what extent do we need the government to just, you know, sort of change its mindset? Or do we need a lot of changes in legislation, acquisition processes, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> it was actually fantastic to hear uh, Administrator Nelson, you know, call that out specifically on on the NASA side. I don't know if I would call it a plague, but it, you know, cost type contracts certainly set up a very different and in some cases perverse set of incentives for a company. You know, it, it can be they're very very comfortable in that you know from the business's standpoint, you're not taking any risk. You're going to get paid for whatever work you do that's within scope for the contract, but uh, you're not incentivized uh you know to move with urgency uh to deliver quickly to you know accomp- accomplish more with less since you know all of your compensation is tied to your costs and like at the end of the day you know if you're looking at kind of like how how venture companies are, are valued like to, to get to a certain uh amount of kind of profit back to your shareholders um with a cost type contract you know you're, you're limited in the profit percentage it's generally you know eight percent ten percent ish um, that means to get to the same amount of profit, your revenues have to be significantly larger than, you know, if you can deliver something with margins that are, you know, 20%, 30%, 40%. And at the end of the day, that's going to end up costing the customer, you know, US government and, and, uh, you know, the US taxpayer more than it otherwise should. Um, So yeah, I'm, you know, a huge, huge proponent of uh, fixed price contracts. Um, you know, throughout the throughout the development cycle, frankly, um, I know like fixed price contracts for development where there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, you know, the the DoD has been burned in in many cases in the past where you know small businesses have you know signed up for fixed price contracts and haven't been able to deliver. I think it works when it's paired with private capital um, that can kind of provide the financial capacitance, if you will, in the system. Uh, you know, to enable you to work through. Um, on a fixed price uh, type basis, so um, you know I don't, I don't think they're they're appropriate for you know for every style of business, but for you know venture backed companies um, and, and other companies where, where private capital is uh, you know is on the table uh, to do what you need to do, yeah, like fixed fixed prices is the way to go. And then on your on your second question, kind of more to the you know is it a is it a change in mindset that's required versus you know change in legislation. You know, like like I said, I think it's on the the acquisition side of the world. I think it is a, a you know change in in mindset, not so much at the kind of top level leadership, but more kind of you know uh, the day to day folks who are you know running the the enterprise you know that is that is the DoD from the contract officers and program managers um, to actually you know be willing to take uh, to take risk. You know, there's an old adage that nobody ever got fired for picking Lockheed Martin, and that's probably true. But you know the incentive structure within the DoD, you know, to see, uh, you know, say a contracting officer get promoted for taking a risk, you know, that's something culturally that doesn't typically happen. Um, you know, a contracting officer is probably going to get promoted if uh, you know the GAO doesn't come in and mess with any of the contracts that they sign. Um, so you know that kind of incentive structure, um, I think, is like the next step that needs to change that kind of helps to solve some of the cultural elements that, you know, really kind of allow the folks, you know, inside the DOD on a day-to-day basis to use the tools that are available to them. Um, I don't think the acquisition tools need to change, um, middle-tier acquisition, you know, SBIRs, all these things. Um, they're all there. 
and, and you know, the authority there is, is granted by Congress. Uh, I think the place that legislation legislation uh, really needs to uh, you know to improve and change is is uh, more on the the PPBE side, so planning, programming, uh, budgeting, execution. So, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, a minimum two-year cycle to, to get something into a customer's budget is uh, incredibly difficult to deal with. And you know, there's there's some small things I think they can change. You know, raising the reprogramming threshold uh, and, and allowing you know budget owners within the DoD to um, kind of shuffle dollars around more more easily, uh, especially for you know innovation and you know kind of crossing the valley of death type programs as as they're transitioning. Uh, to programs of record, um, that's a huge knob that can turn. And I, I'll kind of give you an example about this. So, you know, when when the Air Force was, you know, essentially preparing their budget for, uh, you know, fiscal year 23, you know, Hermius was probably like 12 people. Uh, by the time that budget made its way uh, to Congress, you know, essentially, essentially a year later, uh, you know, the company was, I don't know, 60 people and had you know significantly de-risked you know the, the technical side of, of hypersonic aircraft as well as you know raised 100 million dollars so so much change happened so quickly in the startup world that you know just within the scope of like the air force setting its budget and congress approving it where like you can't make a lot of changes it becomes very difficult to kind of impedance match between you know the two styles of business so you know more tools i think that that allow kind of flexibility and in, in how budgets get allocated and uh, and expended is um, you know, part of the way that that um, I think some of the, the legislative legislative pieces uh, can help come into play and, and really accelerate the you know, modernization enterprise within the department. So, Adrian, tell us a little bit um, more on the side of primes, right? So, we talked a little bit earlier around how your thesis that over time there's going to be more specialization, and we're not just going to have these large companies that build everything, but we're going to have you know more vertical specific like Hermes. On the flip side, though, with the primes that are currently in existence, the Lockheeds, the Raytheons of the world, what are the good sides of those? What, what's, you know, it's always fun to critique the incumbent, but tell us the positives. Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to delivering exquisite capabilities that, that have to work, you know, that, that you're willing to spend a lot of money on and willing to wait for, um, you know, the, the primes are, they've kind of been built for that. They have the facilities that are necessary to do these things, not just from an R&D standpoint, but from a production standpoint. Whereas, you know, in the startup world, we kind of have to, you know, build a team and build the machine that's building the machine. Uh, and then eventually, you know, build out the you know production capabilities down the road. Whereas, you know, a lot of that exists uh, already on the, on the prime side. So, you know, I think uh, in terms of kind of like, you know, risk that is seen on the uh, kind of non-traditional side that that's maybe, uh, perceived as as mitigated uh, on the prime side is you know that kind of smooth transition to production. I, I think the the primes also like frankly understand how to work with the government a heck of a lot better than you know those of us who are who are coming in kind of new to this game. Um, you know I think most folks uh, who are kind of not used to working uh, with the DoD or NASA or the U.S. government in general um, don't have a really good understanding of kind of the physics of the system, kind of how it all works. Um, and that takes a good deal of time to to understand, you know. And in the meantime, the primes understand understand that uh, you know really really well. Um, you know, they're they're spread across the country. There's there's probably not a state that you know each of those primes that you listed don't touch in one way or another throughout their supply base, whether it's you know directly within their companies or uh, you know through the subcontractors that they have in their contracts. And it's kind of an important part of the strategy when when you're 
you were working with uh, you know with the DoD or NASA or other parts of the U.S. government, and I think you've you've seen some uh, kind of you know, newer companies coming in and, and try to kind of play that game uh, in, in a similar way. I mean, you can you know, take a look at Blue Origin and their national team strategy for you know the lunar lander side, and I think sometimes you can overdo it. And I think that that was probably an instance where where they did where you know they went with a uh, kind of a, a more difficult, more complex, maybe less optimal technical solution, you know, and, and traded that for. A, a better, uh, better means of, of working with the government, you know. Whereas I think SpaceX has has kind of been able to to pair both of those together quite well. But yeah, I think uh, you know the I think the average startup founder who's you know considering working at the DoD uh, is probably like, I don't ever want to hire a lobbyist, um, and that's like, it's part of what you have to do, and you know, and kind of get used to it. So um, yeah, I think that you know those those are some things that, uh, uh, that you know the primes are good at, and um, these are the ways they they bring value. So, Adrian, taking this step back here and looking at the macro, do you think we're currently in a space race right now? How do you think both from within the U.S. general people feel about kind of the excitement around SpaceX and uh, all of these other programs? Are, are we in that race? I, I don't know if we're necessarily in one from a kind of a space standpoint. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit removed from the kind of direct space world more so than, than I used to be, but, but certainly kind of still keep track of things. However, I think within the hypersonics world specifically, yeah, yeah, we're, we're kind of in the midst of, you know, a, a kind of a techno-economic, you know, pursuit here where, you know, we're, we're kind of challenging, uh, you know, our, our uh, competitors, you know, across uh, across the Pacific Ocean. Um, and uh, I think it's going to, that's going to continue. Um, it's going to continue for, for quite some time. And I think you're going to see it in, in other areas outside of hypersonics. I think if you kind of look at the list of defense modernization priorities, there's like 14 of them right now. Um, each of those, you could probably argue that that we're in a, you know, a quote unquote space race of, uh, of sorts. And, uh, you know, from a, like a commercial perspective at the end of the day, you know, with, with say high-speed aircraft, for example, whoever gets there first tends to get to write the rules. And uh, obviously it's quite important that, uh, you know, we get to do that from a you know a democratic uh, perspective for, for the whole world. But so yeah, I, I don't know about space race specifically, but but definitely in in a lot of these other areas, um, you know, there's definitely an urgency I think that's that's uh, palpable. So a, a couple of questions following up on that issue: How worried are you specifically about the CCP? Um, you know, where do you think we stand uh, relative to the CCP specifically when it comes to hypersonics? And then why does that matter? Uh, and why should people care? And, and do we think we, you need a, a new Sputnik moment for us to wake up to those challenges? <laughs> uh, so let's see, a couple couple pieces there. So, I mean, you, you can kind of look at what's publicly available uh, in terms of the progress that uh, you know China has made in hypersonic weapons technology over the past couple of years. And it kind of takes, you know, looking a few decades back to kind of understand what happened there. You know, because I think if you looked at like the 90s and, and even the early to mid 2000s, um, the U.S. was still by far the leader in hypersonics technology. But we stopped um, after the you know X43 and X51 programs. We really pulled back on our investments in, in hypersonics. And you know, not only did we do that, we also published just about everything that we did uh, in those programs. So you know, kind of did, did everybody's homework for them. Um, and then we decided, like, hey, this technology is really not that important to us. You know, now, in the span of, you know, say, 10 years or so, China has has basically looked at the technology and said, hey, this is a place where we can create an asymmetric military advantage 
over the West, you know, kind of because they're kind of the away team when it comes to the Pacific. Like this is our home ground, our home ocean. And they've got all these different, uh, you know, kind of high value centralized piece of equipment, whether it's, uh, you know, bases or aircraft carriers, you know, targets against which hypersonic weapons can be incredibly effective. And, you know, from, from our perspective, you know, we had, you know, if you, if you kind of asked uh, somebody in the DOD what hypersonic weapons would be used for you know, 10, 15 years ago, you know, they tell you, you know, high value, time critical targets, things that move around. I think that's that's that answer is still true today, uh, but I think the the target set for those has expanded significantly um, because of the investments that the CCP has made in hypersonic weapons. So, um, you know, the and you know they're obviously incredibly difficult to defend against. Um, they fly relatively low in the atmosphere, so while they you know, they pop up pretty quickly on you know, infrared, you, you can't see that far over the horizon, even with even with some space based sensors. So, um, yeah, they become very very difficult to you know, track, target, uh, and, and defend against, uh, which ends up imposing an immense amount of cost on, on somebody on the other side. So, you know, now, you know, not only on, are we spending money on hypersonic weapons development, we're also spending it on defense against hypersonic weapons. And, and they're, they're really like, uh, coupled together. It's like, you know, uh, I think a lot of folks have, have looked at some of the investments we've been making here in the United States in, in hypersonic weapons and, uh, you know, asking like, well, are we just doing this because Russia is doing it because China is doing it? Uh, it's like because they have they have hypersonic weapons, so we have to have them too. I don't think that's actually the case. Um, I think you know they have their reasons for having them. We have a different set of reasons for having them um, that is you know partially driven by uh, how we defend against those types of weapons. Um, you know the the best way to defend against the difficult to defend against weapon is to make sure that it doesn't launch and doesn't know where to go. So uh, I don't know if I want to say too much more than that, but you know there's there's different reasons why uh, you know we're pursuing them relative to uh, why other folks are. Uh, are pursuing them. So, given all of this, AJ, um, how critical is it for the U.S. government to actually figure out hypersonics uh, into the next decade? You know, give us a scenario. You know, for the average person to understand, if we don't do that, what could happen? What is realistic? If we kind of say, like, yeah, this isn't a technology that that we need to invest in, I think we end up in a position where uh, our you know forward bases and and our assets that are you know, especially like large naval assets. You know, we'll be able to be held at risk. Um, and I think if you, you know, you look at the Taiwan scenario, um, obviously, like, you know, a lot's being learned by what's going on between Russia and Ukraine and Ukraine right now. But the Taiwan scenario, the further and further away, you know, U.S. military assets, whether they're you know, bases or things that are at certain bases that are maybe more at risk than others because of, uh, you know, what hypersonic weapons can do, you know, carriers, the further that those get pushed back, you know, whether it's in the South China Sea, outside of the South China Sea, you know, that kind of raises the likelihood that, you know, the CCP takes action in, in Taiwan. Um, you know, the harder it is for us to um, kind of uh, ensure that success is not blatantly obvious for them. Cause that's like, that's really what keeps conflicts you know, in general, military conflict from happening. You know, somebody's not going to take action unless they have, uh, you know, they're of the opinion that they'll win outright. I mean, you kind of look at what Russia did in Ukraine, like they went in thinking that, uh, you know, uh, they're going to be able to accomplish their objectives very, very quickly. Uh, it turns out they were wrong. Uh, so sometimes, you know, wrong assumptions uh, come in and, and then you end up with protracted conflicts, which are you know, frankly the worst. Um, but same kind of thing in, in, in Taiwan. So at that balance of power, um, you know, on, on the naval side, on, on the air side, on the space side, um, you know, starts to, to shift too far to the point where you know, the CCP gets confident enough in their ability 
um, you know, to to com- you know, successfully compete complete a, a fait accompli. Um, you know, the likelihood of that happening and that driving significant uh, you know, global conflict goes up. So you know, back uh, you know a little bit a uh, little bit of a ways to you know, I talked about at the beginning about hypersonics being kind of a damping force. Um, you know, they're damping when there's uh, kind of the success of them uh, in achieving their goals is kind of you know not blatantly obvious, and that requires you know, development on both sides. And that's that's not just weapons. You know, hypersonic aircraft play an, an immense role here as well in terms of kind of getting into the backfield and, and disrupting things uh, you know ahead of uh, ahead of using hypersonic weapons. So yeah, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily. I think it's it's you know, understanding is growing, but you know the implications of you know, something happening in Taiwan, uh, we, th- we think supply chain challenges are difficult right now um, and semiconductors are hard to get. The world will change significantly uh, should something uh, should something happen out there. So, um, you know, the uh, you know, the ability of the United States and its allies to uh, you know, essentially continue to make it difficult for a decisive military action to be taken there is, is really what's going to you know, prevent uh, I think that, that type of event from happening. So AJ, to bring it home for everybody, let's take a, a big step back. Two questions for you. When you look at America today, one, what keeps you up at night? And then two, what keeps you optimistic in face of all of the challenges that we've talked about? Yeah. So, you know, what, what keeps me up at night? Um, I think, uh, you know, obviously we have a country that is dealing with, you know, an immense amount of political strife, um, you know, on, on, on both ends of the aisle and the spectrum. Um, you know, that's, that's being compounded by, you know, in some cases by external actors. Um, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, unity is a big problem, um, here. And that, that's probably the, the thing that keeps me up and worries me the most. It's, it's really kind of our, our domestic situation, but, you know, the things that, that really make me optimistic are the willingness of, of people to, you know, unite together within. Uh, you know, smaller, smaller cohorts, whether they're you know companies or or whatever, um, to to really take on some of the challenges that are that are happening at a global scale. Um, with it, it's almost like these you know David and Goliath or you know Don Quixote going after windmills. Um, you know things that most people would think are impossible. Like that's so much the lifeblood of who we are as a nation. Um, it has been ever since the the country began, and I think those those little things can inspire a much broader group of people to continue to to follow behind that and uh and you know drive some of the the unification that i think we need to see um you know, to to kind of <laughs> allow us to, to sleep well at night so um you know i think the the future is is immensely bright and i think so much of that uh you know, innovation and, and growth is is not just going to happen in the digital world it's going to happen in the real world um, and obviously, you know, it's going to be a, a pairing of, of software and hardware, but it's going to be solving problems that, that exist here in, in the real world. Um, and, you know, of course, as, as an engineer, uh, you know, that gets me incredibly excited. Um, but, you know, as, as an American, just seeing so many new frontiers that are out there to go be, uh, you know, explored. Yeah, I, I can't think of a better time to go and do it. Amazing. An amazing note to kind of bring this home on. AJ, thank you so much for joining us on Village Global Solar Punk. You bet. It's been great. Thanks, guys. 